0: Our sermon today is taken from 1 Corinthians 7, verses 25 to 35. This is the Word of God. Now, concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of the world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Thus says the Lord.
1: Let us pray for the preaching of God's word. Father in heaven, our hearts are so fickle, Lord, and we're so easily discontent questioning your grace for us. But you, O Lord, are faithful and you renew your mercies and grace to us every morning. Today, Father, as we come under the teaching of your word, send your Holy Spirit, Lord, that we may have ears to hear and soften our hearts, Father, as we ponder this difficult issue of singleness. May your peace come upon us and that we may have wisdom upon this issue and can look upon your grace all the more intently. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So today we're gonna continue in our series on marriage and singleness, and I'm gonna talk about Singleness, right? I gotta be honest though, initially I was not really looking forward to preaching this sermon, nor have I ever personally been particularly interested in sermons about singleness, right? And the reason for that is because I'm quite certain that I'm not called to celibacy, and I've never seen singleness as something that I need to make peace with, right? I see it as a problem that I need to resolve ASAP. So you don't, like in my own mind, I don't need a sermon to tell me what the solution to this problem is. It's obvious, isn't it? Try to date some women and hopefully I can find me a wife. Godly ones, of course. So much more interesting to me would be topics like, you know, how I can find a godly spouse or how to approach dating as Christians or how I know I can be ready for marriage. Because all of these things are things that would help me exit singleness in the most sinless and quickest way possible. But our passage today is actually the most direct teaching in the New Testament about singleness. And studying it was properly rebuking for me. Because when Paul addresses the issue, he does not concern himself with how we can leave singleness, but rather how we should live in it. And though every bone in my body is uncomfortable being single, the only perfect human being, the ideal human being, Jesus Christ, was never married. And Paul himself, the writer of two-thirds of the New Testament, died single. And he is telling us that singleness can be a gift. And not like the gift of tongues or something that only some people get. But singleness is something that all unmarried Christians can genuinely enjoy. In our passage, Paul gives us three things we need for this to happen. Our three points. Paul teaches that we can rejoice in singleness when, one, we equalize marriage and singleness. Two, we have heavenly mindedness. And three, we seize the opportunity of singleness. Let me repeat that. We can rejoice in singleness when, one, we equalize marriage and singleness. Two, we have heavenly mindedness. And three, we seize the opportunity of singleness. Let's get into it. Point one, equalizing marriage and singleness. So look at verse 25, right? Paul starts by clarifying that he is addressing the issue of the betrothed. The word here for betrothed is literally virgins. And this was referring to uh, the unmarried women in that culture who were already promised to be married for someone. And Corinth's case was actually pretty interesting because it was a very sexually liberal culture. Right? It had a worldview that saw sexual urges like hunger for food, right? Some basic human needs. And it's so bad that Paul just rebuked the church for tolerating some pretty flagrant sexual immorality and chapter 5, and he had to warn them specifically to not solicit prostitutes in chapter 6, right, reiterating why it's so wrong. So this is a society where sexual experience was normal and lustful indulgence was readily available for men. So our passage is directed to a church where the unmarried men were constantly faced with temptation, and the unmarried women but betrothed, who undoubtedly had these procreative urges themselves, were eager to be married. This is the issue of the betrothed, right? The present distress that Paul's referring to in verse 26. So although the specific of their uh, cultural context are vastly different from what we're experiencing, I think we can relate to them on a very human level here, right? Having biological urges and cultural norms that, that's pushing them and pressuring them to get married. Now, Interestingly, Paul gives this teaching with a caveat, that what he's saying is not in the realm of a command, right? It's not like, do not commit adultery, right? that will be definitely sin that is obeyed. But what Paul is giving us here is some pastoral wisdom to think through this difficult and complicated issue, theologically. And Paul's already started addressing this issue beforehand, since the beginning of chapter 7, basically telling them just to go ahead and get married if they're really struggling to control these carnal urges. And he's going to repeat this concession again in verse 36 to reiterate the fact that one of the benefits of marriage is certainly um, being able to have an outlet for these urges. But Paul doesn't stop there, right? Although my male brain kind of wished that he would, because if he did, it would be much simpler. My passions are certainly burning, and I'm definitely not above behaving improperly in my premarital relationships if I'm not careful, right? I want sex minus the guilt and sinfulness. So the solution is I got to find a wife, simple. And Paul is saying, well, yeah, that's kind of true, but that's only half the story. So why does Paul feel the need uh, to add to what he was saying in our passage today? Well, if you read to the very end of chapter seven, we can see that because Paul himself was genuinely someone who was able to be happy and feels that he's better off because he remained celibate. Paul wants to teach that happiness and singleness are not mutually exclusive. And in fact, it is actually possible to be sexually inactive inactive by choice, yet not feel depraved and be a complete and fulfilled person. You see, Paul here is building on what he was saying before in chapter 7, verse 17 24, right? He was telling them to not be concerned about whatever life situation that we find ourselves in, Whether it's our cultural background, our socioeconomic status, don't stress about changing the life situation that you're in now. Because whatever life that we have is assigned to us by God and we are called to it by Him. And God is with us in whatever condition each of us was called. God, in His infinite wisdom, has intentionally placed us where we are. And he is present daily, giving us grace such that we can have a relationship with God that is as vibrant and as life-giving as someone living in the conditions that we perhaps wish we had. And applied to our marital status, Paul concludes at the end of verse 26, it is good for us to remain as we are. Married or unmarried, we are genuinely in a good place. Now look at verse 27, 28. Paul begins to explain himself by addressing both the single and uh, the married people. He says, married people, don't wish that you were single. And like okay, singles, don't, uh, don't look to get married. See, Paul here is getting at one of the biggest killjoys of human life. Right? Our tendency to view that the grass is greener on the other side. To fixate on what we don't have instead of being grateful to God for what we do have, for what God has given us. And especially when we're dissatisfied with our lives, what other people have would seem suddenly much more appealing, tricking us into believing that their lives must be so much better because they have what we want. And if we're longing for something very human, like intimacy, companionship, and affection, on top of our raging sexual urges, marriage can really seem like the solution to all our problems. But Paul pretty clearly disagrees with this. I don't know for sure, but I think our married friends would agree that our emotional and sexual needs and desires won't automatically all be fulfilled once we're married. However, if you've read Paul's writings, this might seem inconsistent, right? Because it's very different from this glorious description of marriage in Ephesians 5, for example, where it's this glorious relationship where man is honored like um, Christ, like the church honors Christ. And the woman is loved, like Christ loves the church. Beautiful, right? Who wouldn't want that? But look at the end of verse 28. Paul is basically saying that marriage is not going to be this fairy tale, happily ever after, that we imagined. It's hard, and worldly troubles certainly await us. Because a marriage like the Christ and church relationship doesn't just happen. It is an ideal that both flawed sinners in this marriage union must work every day and put their blood, sweat, and tears into to work on in a world that, that's constantly dragging us down to sin. So while marriage will have massive challenges, that singleness doesn't. And Paul is saying that marriage problems aren't any easier than single problems. Now. We Jakartans could find it exceptionally difficult to accept that marriage and singleness are equal callings because marriage and family is a massive cultural idol here. Marriage is a huge deal because marriage here is not just about you and your spouse being united, but it is deeply tied to the reputation and well-being of the big family. It's about the continuation of the family legacy, expanding and honoring our family name. And our parents won't feel like they're done with their parenting responsibilities until we get married. See, parents think their children are settled or done once they're married. In bahasa, they're only jadi, or matang, right, (laughs) if they're married. So there's a lot of pressure from our families and culture at large, even our friends perhaps, to get married. It's like marriage is when we've graduated to actually being an adult. And this is compounded by the fact that the criteria the culture has for the ideal spouse isn't exactly always biblical. Attractiveness, financial security, race and culture, reputation of the spouse's family, all can become decisive factors in our choice of spouse. Because if we marry someone who doesn't fit the cultural criteria, what are people gonna say? See, and the result is that Marriage is not only a reflection of our own value and success, but also our families. Therefore, the the culture doesn't teach us to look for a spouse who's mainly a partner for us, that's mutually edifying us, encouraging our faith to greater depths, but some messianic figure who can lead us out of the wilderness of loneliness, cultural pressures and expectations, sexual frustration, and middle-class income, and into the promised land of companionship, social approval, sexual satisfaction, and financial security for generations. A high bar with no human can really reasonably live up to. No wonder our search for a spouse here can be so anxious, frustrating, and often hurtful. But despite what the culture says, Paul's teaching us, that our marital status neither determines our value as people or our relationship with the Lord. It's not a matter of sin. Despite what our earthly fathers might expect or even demand, our Heavenly Father is happy with us either way. That vertical relationship doesn't change. We can enjoy as healthy, intimate, and life-giving relationship with God as married couples. In fact, later, we'll learn that singleness has its perks. But Paul's point here is that we need to stop romanticizing marriage, that it will be this be-all and end-all of all existence, this superior phase of life that will resolve all of our insecurities, loneliness, and sexual frustrations. Although marriage should be an amazing experience, so should singleness be, because the God who makes any marriages amazing is here with us making Singleness, amazing. They are different but very much equal paths of the Christian life. And friends, I understand that looking at marriage this way is both counter-cultural and even counterintuitive. And it is a truth that my own sinful heart stubbornly resists to believe. Because the truth is, I'm not happy being single, and it seems like Paul is suggesting me to not seek something that could foreseeably make me happy. And I think Paul is aware of this tension. So these next few verses are directed at helping us understand how we can come to see this too. So point two, have a heavenly mindedness. See, Paul is saying in verses 29, 31, what Paul is saying can sound really weird and be easily misunderstood, especially by people who are reading a translation of his writings 2,000 years after it was written. Look how Paul begins um, and ends his explanation of this thought at the beginning of verse 29 and the end of 31, right? Verse 31 says, the point of time has grown very short. And verse 31, for the present form of this world is passing away. Now, what happens after this very short time When does the present form of the world pass away? It's clear, right, in the Bible. It's when Jesus comes back. And if this is true, Paul is saying that those who are married should live as they're not. Like, wait, what? You see, Paul is not, certainly not, um, suggesting that the fact that Jesus comes back gives us license to not honor the covenant of marriage and go on living the way we want as if we're single. But what is, what is behind what he's saying is his understanding that marriage is not a permanent institution. Once our spouses or ourselves dies, the marriage union is dissolved, the marriage is over. This is why the Bible teaches that in the event that the spouse dies, it is perfectly legitimate for us to remarry. Jesus himself explicitly thought that in the new heavens and the new earth, Once we've been resurrected in glory like Christ himself, there will be no marriages. Check out Matthew 22, uh, verse 23 through 33. So, while marriage is the most important human relationship that we have, there is still a more important eternal relationship that we have with our Lord, which must take priority and we must take into account. Therefore, in order to have a healthy view of marriage, We must always consider it relative to this heavenly reality. And if we can do this, marriage will still be this glorious and beautiful thing that is a blessing from God himself. But it won't be our idol. It will not substitute God in our lives. We won't look to it to justify our existence. It won't be this ultimate thing that we must have in order to have security, significance, and value and it won't preoccupy our minds and our hearts more than God. One of my favorite theologians, Gerhardus Voss, calls this MO of always considering our present circumstances in light of Christ's coming, heavenly-mindedness. And Paul, you can see in verse 30 and 31, applies heavenly-mindedness not only to marriage, but to every aspect of life. If you're going through a difficult season, as so many have been going through this year, and we're mourning Paul is saying that if we have heavenly-mindedness, we would not fall into despair and hopelessness, believing that all is lost. But we can be genuinely full of sorrows, yet rejoicing, holding on to the hope that there will come a day when Christ wipes away every tear from our eyes. If we've been blessed and is able to genuinely rejoice, if we have heavenly-mindedness, what caused us to rejoice would not be the ultimate pursuit in our lives. We won't be chasing the dragon, constantly trying to somehow replicate or one-up that experience of joy or being overly dependent on anything to be our source of joy. But we can be grateful to God for what we have received. But at the same time, consider all things loss compared to knowing Jesus Christ our Lord who we will see in glory after all things pass away. Paul continues using the example of material possessions. If we buy, it's as if we have no goods. A clearer translation of the Greek is perhaps as if it's not ours to keep. So if we have heavenly mindedness, we would still buy things because you know, we need things to do stuff on Earth. But what we'll buy will not be where we find our security, significance and value. We won't take pride in it. Because whatever we have on earth will be taken away from us anyway. But the treasures that we have in heaven, moth nor rust can destroy. Nor nor thieves can break in and steal. It is ours in Christ forever. And look at verse 31. If you have dealings with the world, if there is anything that the world that's offering that, that we need to use, we must act like we're uh, we have no dealings with it. We're kind of detached from it. See, the, the NLT and KJV somehow translated it in a more understandable way, right? It's to not be attached to it or to abuse it, right? This is the most sweeping of all the examples Paul gives of heavenly-mindedness. And it's teaching us that the posture of heavenly-mindedness should make us realize that this world is not our home. Like Israel in the wilderness, living in tents, waiting to receive the fullness of God's promises. That's what our life is like, this wilderness context. Therefore, our aspiration would not be to build our own kingdoms here on earth, not to leave a legacy on earth, not to maximize our own prestige and comfort, because ultimately none of that will matter. The present form of the world is passing away. Still, take advantage of the opportunities we get, work hard, enjoy life, do your best, But do it knowing that at the end of it all, all of it, as Ecclesiastes says, are vanities of all vanities, like chasing after the wind. So, heavenly mindedness, friends, is not proposing this stoic way of life where you don't really care about anything and are just waiting to be done with life and go to heaven. But it does require us to be sober-minded about our earthly life and always to look at it in the context of eternity. Therefore, it requires this discipline of being critical about ourselves, taking our thoughts captive, and constantly checking our hearts, constantly and intentionally reordering our priorities to put God on top where He belongs, committing to glorifying Him and doing the work that He has called us to, being aware that our reward is not here, but in glory, to the point where we can agree with Paul when he says, to live is for Christ, and to die is gain. Otherwise, our lives will inevitably be what we care most about and where we draw our security, significance, and value. And contentment, not only in singleness, but in life in general, will always be this elusive and fleeting thing. Because the worldly things that we reminisce about And the things we long for is always better in our heads than in reality. For the true rest of the soul, as Augustine says, is not found here. When he eloquently says, between temporal and eternal things, there is this difference. A temporal thing is loved more before we have it and begins to grow worthless when when we gain it. For it does not satisfy the soul, whose true and certain rest is eternity. But the eternal is more ardently loved when it is acquired than when it is merely desired. Brothers and sisters, it is only if we discipline ourselves to be heavenly-minded can we begin to concern ourselves with what is eternal instead of what is temporal. And it is only if we have set eternity in our hearts, we singles can begin to see that marriage and singleness are equal equally honourable, equally fulfilling callings, although very different, that God calls his children and will ultimately lead to his kingdom. And it is only after we've equalized marriage and singleness is it possible for us to see that singleness is not a problem that we need to fix, but it's actually an opportunity that we can capitalize on. How? Which leads me to point three. Seize the opportunity of singleness. Look at verse 32 to 34. Why is Paul teaching us this? He wants us singles to be free from anxieties. He doesn't want us to worry about our marital status. You see, Paul has great empathy for the struggle of singleness. But paradoxically, how we can overcome this struggle is actually by redirecting our energy, our emotions, our thoughts towards another struggle, a more important one, struggling for the things of the Lord specifically how to please the lord how to grow in holiness of body and the spirit which is the same thing because what pleases the lord is our holiness you see paul is trying to make us realize that there are real benefits to being a single christian if you look at verse 33 to 34 he explains that when we're married our interests are divided by worldly anxieties worldly here does not necessarily mean sinful but but saying that there are more practical considerations in married life. See, and, and I think a lot of our singles realize this already, right? When people are married, and especially if they have children, everything changes. They don't have as much of themselves to spare and share because taking care of a family requires all they got, sometimes more. And this is because when we're married, we're directly responsible for the happiness, safety, and emotional well-being of our household. Therefore, we must consider a a whole other set of human beings. So things like health, financial security, um, future stability become much more pressing concerns. Whereas while we're single, we're really only worried about surviving today and um, fulfilling whatever ambitions we have. And I can't speak for women, but we men are usually quite aware and are anxious of this, especially the financial responsibilities related to being married and starting a family. But don't be fooled, friends. The financial concerns are just one of the worldly things that we need to be worried about when it comes to marriage. And just because we can offer financial security it doesn't mean that our marriage will be smooth sailing from then on. Although, i got to admit, it probably definitely helps. Because, I don't know if you realize, but when we get married, we are committing ourselves for life to another deeply flawed sinner, just like ourselves. Our sins will definitely hurt our spouse. And they, and their sins, will always hurt us too, to some extent. See, and deep flaws and wounds might surface that we didn't even realize were there. And the consequences of our sins are going to affect not only ourselves, but our entire household. So there is definitely more freedom and a larger margin of error in singleness when uh, in terms of working on our personal holiness. And Paul is teaching us this not to deter us from marriage, right? But his point is that we must be aware that marriage entails huge responsibility. It will take up most of our thoughts, resources, and emotional capacity. So, Paul's point then, therefore, is that while we're single, we have the opportunity to dedicate the spare time, energy, and resources unto pleasing the Lord, to pursue what is pleasing to him by growing our holiness and in body and spirit with less practical hindrances. Not that healthy Christ-centered marriages shouldn't strive to please the Lord, they certainly must. But Paul is teaching here that the range of things they could do is definitely limited. And in fact, when we're married, it's harder to dedicate time specifically to the Lord. For example, there's this pastor in the United States, uh, Tim Keller, you might have heard of him. He didn't write books until he was in his 50s. And his books are great, right? They're really helpful. But he explicitly said in one of his sermons that why he didn't start earlier was because was married with children. So having the responsibility to take care of his family simply meant that he couldn't properly commit and dedicate the time that is required to write something like a book until his kids were grown. See, and I don't get it twisted. I'm not saying that taking care of one's family is a less pleasing thing um, to God than doing ministry. Right? The Bible does say that Whoever does not provide for his family is worse than an unbeliever. And God is certainly pleased to see us obey his commands. But being without a family frees us to more options, more opportunities to be creative and expansive in our ministry. We can do so much for the kingdom of God and grow in our knowledge of God more intentionally and intensely um, than when we were married without being anxious of straining family or being distracted by practical matters. Brothers and sisters, if we take Paul's advice here and seize the opportunity in our season of singleness by behaving properly and giving undivided devotion to God, we will find that the season can be a much more pleasant and productive experience than perhaps we initially expected. But the problem is we often use our single Um, seasons in very much counterproductive ways. Look, after going through something like a rough breakup, anyone can feel jaded about relationships and say that they're happy being single for now and that they want to work on themselves. What that often means is that they're going to focus on their career and make some more money or they're going to work out more and become more attractive or they're going to do things that they weren't able to do when they're single. You see, and this, apparently, could put them in a better position to find a better spouse. Now, that might totally work in the secular world. And I'm not saying that those aren't worthy and productive pursuits, but as far as uh, the goal of finding an equally yoked Christian spouse, that doesn't get you very far. Because if we believe that it is our wealth and physical attractiveness that increases our chances of getting a spouse, then the spouse that we get will value us for our body and our money with the hope that hopefully we can get some emotional support from us and perhaps even spiritual guidance, right? So it becomes this totally transactional and superficial relationship. And eventually, if we don't find someone, the stresses of this world is going to get to us again. And then we're going to get lonely or bored. Then we're right back at square one being discontent with singleness. But if what we really want is this Ephesians 5 kind of marriage, our best bet is to commit ourselves to undivided devotion to God and to seize this opportunity that we have in our seasons of a singleness to grow. Because for men who are supposed to love their wives as the church, the best thing we can do is to work on being more like Christ so that we can love like Christ. And for women, who are supposed to submit to their husbands as the Lord. The best thing they can do is to actually feel joyful and comfortable submitting to the actual Lord. But ultimately though, brothers and sisters, you know, this passage is not uh, telling us how to get a Christian spouse, right? It's not telling us to work on our faith so that we can get a spouse from God. Though he is certainly capable what this passage is doing is that he wants us to be at a place where we're able to be free from anxieties about marriage. Because our devotion to God fills our hearts so much that we're not worried whether or not marriage is something that God has for us in the future. Because we trust that the Lord knows best and is not trying to withhold anything from us. He will not give us a snake when we ask for an egg. And in fact, God has already given us the very best thing. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who paid the penalty for our sins with his life on the cross, such that it is possible for us, the church, to be his bride and to have this eternal future with him in glory. Do you believe this? So let us discipline ourselves in heavenly mindedness, so that we can stop this idolatry of marriage that our culture feeds us. And let's equalize the value of marriage and singleness, such that we can willingly pursue and enjoy to the utmost this precious relationship that Christ gave his life for. And look, in all likelihood, we're not going to be in this season forever. Very few people are actually called to that. And those who are are actually at peace with it. Though this season might be a little longer than perhaps most of us would like. So I myself need to repent from this adultery of marriage in order to see my time being single as a genuine opportunity. And my mental health, my ministry, and hopefully my future marriage will flourish all the more because of it. And again, I'm very sympathetic that life in Jakarta for singles can be exceptionally difficult. We constantly face pressure from our families, ridicule from our peers, and anxiety from our own hearts about this issue. And this is simply an unfortunate reality, the brokenness of sin that is rooted in our culture. And this is where, friends, the body of Christ becomes crucial, where the body of Christ needs to come together and be God's hands for our singles such that we don't feel like there's something wrong with us, but we have access to all the love and acceptance that we need. While we might still feel lonely and anxious, sometimes, at least this way, we won't be drowning, but we're swimming through stressful waters to relief. This relief will not come on our earthly wedding day, but to the wedding day that all weddings actually point to, the wedding supper of the Lamb, where the church will be beautifully adorned in white, having been cleansed from her sins in order to be wed to Christ, our true husband, so that you can finally move in with him to live in his presence forever, where there is the fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Do you believe this? So if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the grave, this is already yours, already ours, in Christ. Whether or not we get married in this life, no Christian is missing out on the true marriage. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we long for you, Lord, and we wait for the day that you will take us home, that we may see your face, Father. And Father, right now, the concerns of this world are often heavy on our shoulders. But we trust and believe that you are here with us. I want to pray specifically today for the singles, uh, hearing this message in the singles in our church, Lord. I pray, Father, that you can send comfort through your Holy Spirit to us, that you may assure us of your faithfulness and give us the fullness of joy, Lord. Lead us to brothers and sisters in a relationship that are as life-giving. And, it is, and if it is in your will, give us uh, someone fitting for us, someone who is equally yoked so that not our desires may be fulfilled, but that we can glorify you all the more. For your glory is foremost. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.